Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. Welcome to bonus COVID number four, where we are uh, going through all of the most recent literature reports. Yes, now that we're 183, two, two hundred eighty-two days into the COVID pandemic yeah, worldwide. Tomorrow, COVID is six months old. Six month baby. <laughs> yeah, it's. Yeah, that's not good. It's <laughs> a bad noise. I'm glad I'm over that stage. So let's uh, let's move through the literature as quickly as human possible so we can go back to our regular lives. Okay, so we're going to start off on a little bit of a funny note because I just think it's super funny. Wastewater-based epidemiology. <laughs> that means <laughs> we're taking samples out of your sewer. I mean, who decides that they're going to be that kind of a biologist? And again, I, we there are studies on drug use. And checking sewers That's for cities, true. but uh, so this was actually hmm. published in the Science of the Total Environment. Indeed, it is the Total Environment. Dot, and they basically looked at this WBE wastewater-based epidemiology to really look at mitigating COVID nineteen outbreaks. Looked at chemical signatures <laughs> in sewage. <laughs> um, looking at fragment, so it's partially been digested. I don't. Just the word fragment. <laughs> you you lost me at fragment. Anyway, biomarkers from SARS-CoV-2. Uh, and uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> look at the signature of entire communities. But, you know, we might laugh. But this could really help with the whole outbreak thing, especially in big communities. I, just, I can just see this guy going door to door. It's like, <laughs> excuse me, ma'am. We've been checking your sewer. And I got a couple questions for you. No. Anyway. anyway. So then we're going to move on to hamsters. Now we're infecting hamsters as an experiment. This was super cool. My 10-year-old thought this was the coolest thing ever. So they put partitions that kind of simulates a surgical mask on transmission between hamsters in separate cages with airflow that was unidirectional. In the absence of a mask partition, 67% of exposed hamsters became infected with SARS-CoV-2. Adding the surgical mass partition reduced the transmission to between 17 and 25%, depending on the configuration. So the concerning thing to me is, are the hamsters going to be trying to get masks because there's a shortage? <laughs> right. They should please not give the masks to the hamster. This was uh, from Chan et al., Clinical Infectious Diseases. Yeah. I think we should be doing these tests on humans. Okay. Um, are you going to be the one in the partition getting SARS-CoV-2 Probably. blown in your face? So you then, old man from the Journal of Medical Virology, he at Al. So they did a little study uh, and really looked at the a meta-analysis of twenty-two studies is not a little study. Okay, so it was a bigger study, and they were basically looking at the R naught, which uh, Dr. Bell loves R naughts, and they actually came up with an R naught for COVID of around uh, three point one five. A little bit higher than we've been hearing lately. Yeah, the same stuff with the incubation, five days, and you know they they actually got an asymptomatic rate of about forty six percent, which is a, probably a little bit on the higher side of most of the studies that we've seen. I think. But and then they actually factored in the asymptomatic people into their case fatality rate, which dropped the case fatality rate down to two point seven two percent, which is still a bunch. 
still a lot of people when you're looking at millions. Yeah. So, so then we're going to move on to the Lancet Respiratory Medicine, uh, Lancet Respiratory Medicine, Samson et al. They basically looked at healthy volunteers uh, to look at the number, size, and persistent of respiratory droplets produced during a cough, a sneeze, and normal talking. So basically, they got to cough, sneeze, and talk, and they looked at respiratory droplets. I should have really been in this study. Yeah, the way you talk, this spit goes everywhere. What I would hate is like say, "Hey, watch that little droplet. You just sucked in my droplet." <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> right. Do they? Do you think they like diet anyway? Yeah. Um, but the aerosol transmission, even during all of these things, was up to nine minutes. Yeah. So the ways to help this is increasing ventilation by opening doors and windows to decrease the persistence of the droplets. However, as we've seen in big meat-producing plants, I don't think that means putting a fan to circulate the air within the same space. Yeah, and there's actually, there was a study we read way back about... Like way back a, two weeks ago? Yeah, like at day 150, uh, <laughs> about being in a car with somebody who's COVID positive and opening a window and causing all of that turbulence. So opening the window just to give a little bit more air. Apparently what if works. you open one window and then you open another one on the opposite side, like in the back seat? That study's not been done. So anyway, really not the biggest thing. They just found that's the evidence to support improving ventilation for public spaces. Ooh, ventilation. So, yeah. That's kind of a and, morbid. Anyway. And, and then TAM et al., that's a, this was actually in clinical infectious diseases, a little thing about breast milk and can you detect SARS RNA? So they were actually in a first, this is just a first case report of a 40-year-old woman um, who was still lactating, and they were able to detect RNA in the breast milk. But again, that did not necessarily indicate virulence. And what does that actually mean in the breast milk? Yeah, it's know. the same as all that stuff with, well, we found uh, RNA on a stainless steel surface. That does not mean it. I thought you were going to go back to the wastewater. No, <laughs> that, that you can't, that you can get infected. It's just that it's RNA. It's there. So. Okay, now I'm really exciting. So, again, in the Journal of Medical Virology, so they actually did a phylogenetic analysis, which explaining this to a 10 and an 8-year-old last night was quite hilarious. But basically, the bottom line that they were able to kind of show in this study, this Bezerra et al., was that it appears to be the RNA started in a bat for SARS-CoV-2 with the pangolin, again, uh, the only mammal with scales, yep. keratin-like fingernails grandpa. Yeah, they curl up so you can't bite through their scales. Anyway, unless you tickle them. Unless you tickle them. That's a book they... to be coming from your granddaughter. Yep. Um, anyway, so the pangolin was probably an intermediary, and then we ended up in humans. So bats and pangolins. We're still sticking with the bat and the pangolin. So uh, the next one that we had was actually about vaccines. And uh, I actually like this one because they talked about what what percentage of people would we have to Vac- vaccinate to actually kind of slow this all down. And they're saying that if you had a vaccine that was roughly 70% effective and at least 60% got it, then your need for social distancing would be minimal if it was introduced within 90 days of the start of a pandemic. Well, we're a little late there, but how about Twice a resurgence? Far. Yeah, good, good to think. So they just need to make the vaccine. You skipped over this one, which I thought was really cool. So they looked at all of the, again, phylogenetic analysis. It's just the super intelligent. You skipped it because you probably can't say that word. So they looked at the Mount Sinai Health System. 
and they found 84 distinct SARS-CoV-2 genomes. So does that mean it's mutated that many times? All different introductions, mainly from Europe, other parts of the U.S. So just a very interesting thought that there's all these different genomes they were able to identify in one health system. Yeah. And next from uh, Lancet, I think Lee et al. Now this is something I think we've all been wondering and we've discussed with patients because all the patients come to your clinic and they want to know if they're considered high risk. And uh, so they did a multi-center study, an observational study in the UK that basically found that if you had cancer and you were getting cytotoxic chemotherapy or any other anti-cancer treatment, um, you know, were you at increased risk for mortality for COVID-19? Dr. Bell, would you be at increased risk? Only if you had the typical comorbidities. Correct. So cancer itself with even the chemo did not increase your risk. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's some weird things with that. But yeah, that was what they came up with. So I think more to come. Um, so then back again in the Lancet, uh, systematic review, of meta, meta, another meta-analysis of non-pharmacological interventions uh, to prevent transmission of COVID. Basically, they said that social dis- physical distancing, excuse me, of one meter had lower viral transmission. And the further away you were from people, the longer distances had even better protection. Um, but they did show that the N95s or similar were better than disposable surgical or cotton masks in preventing that transmission. Well, you just went to June 2nd. I did. Oh, you lost me. But so moving moving on. So in JAMA. JAMA. Uh, I like JAMA. Uh, this was from June 1, actually. And uh, Sharfstein, that's kind of a cool name. And Morphew. And Morphew. Morphew. Morpheus. So uh, they basically talked about reopening schools and uh, really, could you reopen schools? Um, and, and maybe we should because of really look at all the other things that occur because of that. The loss of access to meals, health services, disparities in Internet access, all this stuff. I mean, because even Hibbing doesn't have the greatest Internet access in the Iron Range of Minnesota. No. And they just recommend that if they establish very aggressive testing, contact tracing, and isolation protocols. And prioritizing kids with higher risk, so with asthma or heart issues. Yeah, that they could actually uh, open the schools and not have significant issues. Can we just go with that? I have three kids that need to restart school this fall, and my five-year-old Fancy Nancy already has her first day of school all been picked out. Yeah, and I'm, I'm assuming you're going to be homeschooling. I... Oh, you're just trying to push me out so you can do all of this fun stuff on your own? It would be better. All right, so we're going to... Anyway, we're going to move on. To transmission. Yes, and this is a preprint, Bosco Louth et al. So this is looking at your domestic animals. Cats are susceptible to subclinical infection, but they're able to give direct transmission to other cats. They have prolonged viral shedding for up to five days, they do, though, develop a neutralizing antibody response that does prevent reinfection of the cat. But dogs. But dogs. Mm. They do develop an antibody response, but they don't shed the virus after infection. So really, and, and here's what was really funny. None of these animals actually exhibited any clinical signs. So they are these asymptomatic things. But they do conclude that it's unlikely that any of these domestic pets can actually give a human an infection. But man's best friend and the cat thing, 
can be used as a source for creating um, vaccines for humans. I'm going to go on record saying I think a cat can make you sick. Because how does the who's the cat get it from? It gets it from a human. Well, and they poop in a box in your house. And it, and we know it's in the stool. I I don't I don't love cats, but man's best friend. Maybe we can look at them for vaccines. Maybe not Ripley though. He eats everything. Anyway, so then we're going to move to another preprint. Bunano. Bunano at all. Yeah, so Bunano had this little thing going uh, where they were looking at the infection risk in the presence of asymptomatic COVID-19 subjects. And uh, in a kind of a naturally ventilated indoor environments. And basically they're saying, listen, if you're in a room with a bunch of people and it's short term, maybe less than 20 minutes, maybe your infection rate is 1% or less. But if you hang out there a long time and you or go you're to doing choir, choir, you know, that whole thing, uh, they think that outbreaks uh, obviously can be explained by airborne transmission. So don't do that. Don't do choir. No choir. Stop singing. Good thing I can't. Anyway, another preprint. This was from Lu- Luo Lau et Lu- al. Basically looked at a small study of 23 postpartum women with confirmed or suspected COVID. The bottom line is they did not find any SARS-CoV-2 in breast milk samples. But... They were able to find IgM in breast milk that correlated with the detection in maternal blood, but the IgG was not found in any breast milk samples, and all the babies were good. Interesting. Now on to some clinical characteristics and healthcare setting papers. Actually, just one. But uh, this was by, well, it looks like Bono, but it's Bonjova. Bojkova. Bojkova. Um, it's a little talk about, or a little paper about SARS-CoV-2 and infects and induces cytotoxic effects in human cardiomyocytes. You like this one. I, I do. Like. I just think it's a kind of a dub because obviously there's a lot of heart things and you get elevated troponin and all of that, but that the virus can actually infect the heart cells themselves. And I am really sorry that my partner here keeps making all this paper rustling noise. <laughs> I've been trying to give him sign language that y'all can't hear or see and he just hasn't figured it out yet. But anyway, SARS-CoV-2 can be found in the heart cells and obviously would show an associated elevated marker of cardiac injury. June Thanks 3rd. for caring. June 3rd. So geographic spread, a little bit on that. Abrams in the in actually the Journal of American Geriatric Society. Didn't know they had that one. But okay, again, last night when I was going through these with my 10 and 8-year-old sons, they said, what does geriatric mean? I said, you know, kind of like Kurt. So moving on. <laughs> they thought that was funny. They, uh, they, they said, what, old? <laughs> They looked at uh, about 3,000 3, uh, nursing homes of 9,300 located in 30 states that had at least one documented COVID-19 case. And what they found, not that surprising, is that nursing homes were that were large, they were urban, and they had a lot of uh, – a high proportion of black residents had a high probability of reporting a COVID-19 case. And I think that kind of fits in with a lot of the well, stuff we've heard. Yeah, and I just think large and urban by itself, it's just closer living proximity and with more people around. And if obviously it's a larger nursing home, you have more workers coming and going. Yeah, and I think that it's probably more common in the Twin Cities that the larger nursing home systems probably have workers that go from place to place, where I think here we generally don't. Right, and, so. you know, like we have two nursing home type settings in our community, but there's been like one case in each one rather than multiple. So I think it's probably a little easier to control in a smaller area. 
So then we're moving on to the New England Journal of Medicine. So this is pretty fancy. We're going back to the H drug. Uh. Basically, do not need to use H drug hydroxychloroquine as post-exposure prophylaxis. Basically, they found no evidence of efficacy. Where was this done? Do you know? I don't even remember. It was done at the University of Minnesota, I believe. Bullware. Yeah. I'm almost sure that said at the beginning. And, oh. and uh, we actually had one of their people on oh, you're right, the Echo did. just not long ago. And we asked him this specific question. He must have known already what was coming. And, <sighs> and he said, Cheater. no, don't use it. Don't use it's it. It's junk. I think my brother was wrong. I was just going to say, is your brother listening to this? Sorry, Marty. <laughs> Oops. I don't want to throw him under the bus. Um, but yeah, so basically it well, doesn't work. Well, a lot work. of people thought it was a good thing. Look at the president. I mean, it, it was that drug, and I think I think it's okay to say that because I think early on hydroxychloroquine was when you have this huge outbreak, this huge pandemic, you want something to work. And hydroxychloroquine initially looked promising, so everybody jumped on board. I did this study where I compared hydroxychloroquine to um, chiclets, and there was no difference. See, now you just made it stupid. Yeah. So so <laughs> anyway. next there was uh, Lancet and as actually Tic Tacs. Uh, Lancet and New England Journal of Medicine, by the way, uh, there was this study that was done uh, using hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine. And uh, there was some stuff uh, published by these authors that were associated with that company, Surgisphere Corporation. That just sounds problematic. Sounds round sphere. And uh, these articles uh, basically both utilize kind of this retrospective data, trying to suggest that maybe there was some value, but they won't give anybody their data. So, Yeah, so basically they just kind of issued what they call expressions of concern about the validity of the data. So ironically, the next day... It's like being shunned. ...that those authors actually do put out a, what is it, a revocation or revocation? revocation? Revo- rev- revoked. They revoked. Retraction. There it is. They retract it. They retracted it in the Lancet, um, but they wouldn't make any comment on the primary data, but they basically said, oops. Sorry. Sorry. I, I accidentally sent that, and I was just going to read it. So back to the studies here. Carmo et al., Journal of Medical Virology, they basically looked at um, SARS-CoV-2, most patients will continue to test positive um, with that PCR test for over two weeks. Minimum time from first positive to first negative was seven days, but some people maintain positivity of that PCR for 51 days. However, mm. um, it wasn't associated with uh, severity of disease, but rather a weaker immune response. So stay tuned. Uh, we actually had a very interesting family of cases that is kind of got something going like this that we're going to be talking probably with uh, Dr. Nasca, our infectious disease doctor, on Wednesday about. So there you go. stay tuned. Great case. Well, one of the things they didn't say in there is what were their IgGs? I mean, they, they basically said maybe associated with weaker immune response, but did they mean lower IgGs? No IgGs? Right. So, oh, yeah. Anyway. Go ahead. So looking at the Journal of Intensive Care, Huang and Pranada, did a meta-analysis of lymphocyte count and severity, and basically kind of what we've been looking at, poor clinical outcomes outcomes have lower lymphocyte count compared to those with good outcomes. So lymphopenia significantly associated with severe COVID-19. Yeah, that's the first question I'm going to ask if I get COVID. I'm like, what's my white count look like? No, but your lymphocytes. I know, but and then it'll be like, what's my lymphocytes? It'll be like Dr. Devine. 
There's zero. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry about it. Are you sure you don't have lymphoma? Yeah. So next uh, little article that was done in the European Journal of Heart Failure, and uh, this was actually by Bean et al., like B-E-A-N, green bean. Um, so oh, You it, know what a green bean is? A legume. It's a vegetable? Hmm. You don't okay. eat those. Don't care. You didn't eat them yesterday. <laughs> So it's been hypothesized that ACE inhibitors and angiotensin II blockers that are, you know, obviously often given to people could increase the risk of COVID-19 infection. And uh, but, they found no evidence of that, even on ICU admissions or deaths. And I think there's been a lot of people have talked about this. And there are some people that think it's even uh, a good thing that you're good. on it. So, But they've not yet declared that they should start this once you've already been infected. They're showing, I think, the people who've already been on these medications prior to getting COVID tend to do a little bit better, Mm. not as a treatment, correct? Correct. Correct. Okay. So now we're moving on uh, in a systematic review. This was Vindegaard and Ben Ross from the Brain Behavior and Immunity Journal. PTSD and depressive symptoms of um, COVID patients typically were found to be higher in women, patients who had poor self-rated health status, and those whose relatives were more likely, uh, or whose relatives were infected. So basically what this means is women are just more empathetic and (laughs) tend to have lower self-esteem. Moving on. And we're going to have higher PTSD and depressive symptoms. Let me shuffle some papers. (laughs) Uh, We're going to the 4th of June. A little article on transmission, which... uh, this is a good one. This is interesting because it deals with chopsticks, which I so rarely use well uh, or never. And they had a SARS-CoV-2 RNA. Was actually, Do you know how to use chopsticks? No, I don't. Uh, it was detected on disposable wooden chopsticks used by five consecutive asymptomatic and post-symptomatic patients. Like, are you done with those? <laughs> Can I use those chopsticks? So my question. I mean, how did that happen? So my question, though. So I I can use chopsticks and I think it's fun when you oh, go sure to some place. But usually they're individually wrapped. So you're saying that are there restaurants that the table next to you is like, hey, can I borrow your chopsticks? Or I'm um, do they like wash them like you would silverware and then they bring them out again? They're made of wood. They don't wash well. That's what my question is. So now I just don't think I can have used chopsticks. But again. basically they've said that this demonstrates a potential that chopsticks or other dining utensils could be used as a vehicle for transmission and. Uh, Obviously, this has potential implications for communal meals, especially in communities of custom of sharing dishes or utensils. Yeah, it's kind of like when you take a big, uh, you know, a big spoonful of potatoes and then you you dump it on your plate and you lick the spoon like and put it back dipping. in. Like double dipping. Yeah, like a, Yeah, this double is all dip, about double dipping. Salsa. Yeah, so don't double dip. Don't double dip. So we're going to move on. We're going. We already did the retraction. So now we're going to look at emerging infectious diseases. Benamore. Is that how you say that? Mm -hmm. This was cool. So they looked at, yeah, this was only a case series of three patients, but these were patients who developed encephalopathy and encephalitis, which of course we haven't even talked about. We're still having trouble finding neurologists for a regular echo on this, but um, so patients who get this complication of COVID, all three of them had increased CSF levels of IgM, IL-6, IL-10, but there was no SARS-CoV-2 in any CSF sample. So... What does this mean? So they think there's thinking that a lot of this inflammatory, the encephalitis encephalopathy comes from the inflammatory markers, not from the virus itself. We are on a case series of 50 children. 
Ah, I see it. Jamapedes. Jamapedes. So they did, uh, it was actually 50 children and adolescents. That was my computer. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, I'm just, I'm just on the internet doing a little Googling. <laughs> uh, so uh, they were hospitalized with COVID-19 in New York I City. I promise these aren't Wikipedia articles. Yeah, yeah we, we are on Wikipedia. With severe disease, they, they basically had higher C-reactive proteins and procalcitonin levels, which I think we've all seen Although, that data. Is this, they haven't really talked a ton about procalcitonin as no. one of the labs in COVID. No. And, of course, that, the ferritin, the D-dimers, you know, if they're high, those are the ones that have a little bit more trouble. But just like the other study that we talked about earlier, infants and immunocompromised patients were not at an increased risk of severe disease. So that's, you know, that's certainly changing the way I'm thinking when I'm getting these calls from the kids on well, kids on Humira, things like that. I mean, it's like mm-hmm. they're basically saying that's not a huge deal. All right. So, so you're all lucky. We're down to four. The, the last four articles we're going to review. So this comes from MMWR, Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. This was by Marcus et al. Seven weeks of non-pharmaceutical interventions. So looking at quarantine, social distancing, early screening, isolation, monitoring. They looked at basic military training center as a U.S. Air Force base. And out of the 10,000 trainees tested, uh, tested, only five were positive. And I mean, that's remarkable. And only th- and three of those five were all connected to the first case. So if you're doing really good at all those other things... You really can make that R not go down. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that R not we're worried about, but I think it just shows you that if you really aggressively do those things, you're just not going to get the transmission. So then we so, are going to go to. Did you have something else to say? No, I was just making sure you were on the right page. I am. I'm on clinical infectious diseases. Wang. Wow. Adele. Wang. Adele. So they did a little thing with 70 COVID patients uh, who had recovered. And actually, all had detectable new, neutralizing anti-SARS COVID two antibodies by twenty days. So the neutralizing antibodies are the ones you want. You want those, and it found that they were detected in COVID nineteen patients even early on in the earliest part of the disease. But ironically, if you're old and you have some more severe symptoms, your antibodies are higher. So just. Does that mean you? It doesn't say anything about mortality. It just says they're higher. No, but it's interesting that the older patients had higher levels because that's where you know we've thought that their immune systems just don't necessarily uh, kind of do what they're needing to do. But very cool. Yeah. So, International Journal of Infectious Diseases now thirteen out of one thousand six hundred and seventy three recovered COVID nineteen patients who all had a mandatory two week quarantine in Wuhan, China. 13 of them, so what was it, point, point 0.08% or something like that, relapsed, characterized by mild symptoms, a new positive PCR result, and chest CT results consistent with COVID. All were hospitalized, so these 13, you know, relapsed patients. None were admitted to the ICU, and the re- remainder of them did not um, show recurrence of disease, but they did not necessarily lay out if they had repeat PCR testing. Yeah, interestingly, some of the early papers talked about people who got readmitted and what their rate of mortality was, and it's high. But if you get a relapse and you're readmitted, uh, it doesn't look like it's such a big thing. But again, we do have a very interesting case here uh, of a family that got relapsed and 
Just keep tuned in because we're going to talk about that. Not today. All right. So last study, also out of JAMA, uh, DeGessis et al. (laughs) They looked at healthcare workers who had been fit tested for an N95 respirator within the last one to two years. One third of these healthcare workers um, failed their repeat testing with the same N95. And they kind of put that in with the whole, they're more likely to fail if they had worn... um, the N95 multiple times, they had put it on and off multiple times, and they had high hours. Um, so this whole using the same N95 multiple times over and over and over for long days is not really giving much extra benefit. Yeah, I have one that I've been using for six months. I can actually see through it. I don't think That's it, not true. Yeah, I don't think it's working anymore. <laughs> so we have a great week coming up for those of you who follow some of the things we do. Uh, we do have a pathologist on. Yeah. T- Tuesday, we have Dr. Baker, Hennepin County Medical Examiner, discussing some of the postmortem complications and issues with patients uh, with COVID and presumed COVID or diseases or death causes of death that look like COVID. Yeah. And then we also have someone from MDH coming on to talk about contact tracing. Yeah. Wednesday, we do not have our opioid echo, so please do not tune in for that. Uh, we'll be back next week with that. And then Thursday, I'm trying to remember if I can even... I'm not even sure I remember what we have <laughs> I don't on Thursday. Remember what we have on Thursday. I'm sorry. That's embarrassing. And since we don't edit, we can't put it we in. We can't fix that. But we're uh, just going to let the band kind of come on now and we'll try and forget that we had this problem. Yes. Um, but Tuesday's auto release on the addiction connection, the actual addiction topic is country music and heroin and opioids. So, yeah. How it affects time. the music. There you go. By Charlie Reznikoff and his friends. I think we're. We're, we're the friends. We're the friends. Okay, anyway. Battle legs. Hey, thank you very much for listening. Heather, anything? No, thank you. Fifteen birds in five fur trees. Their feathers were fanned in a fiery breeze. But funny little birds, they had no wings. Oh, what shall we do with the funny little things? Oh, what shall we do with the funny little things? them alive or stew them in a pot fry them boil them eat them hot bake and toast them fry and roast till beards blaze and eyes blaze till hair smells and skins crack fat melts and bones black and cinders lie beneath the sky so the dwarves shall die 15 birds in five fur trees their feathers were fanned in a fiery breeze but funny little birds They had no wings Oh, what shall we do With the funny little things Oh, what shall we do With the funny little things Their feathers were fanned 
in a fiery breeze. But funny little birds, they had no wings. Oh, what shall we do with the funny little things? Oh, what shall we do with the funny little things?